wonderful is the God of Christ who gathers the poor of the earth. Glorious is our God who wipes away the tears of sorrow. Wonderful is the God of Christ who gives inheritance to the meek. Glorious is our God who satisfies the hunger of the just. Wonderful is the God of Christ who gives mercy to the merciful. Glorious is our God who gives vision to the pure in heart. Wonderful is the God of Christ who adopts the peacemakers. Glorious is our God who lifts high the persecuted. Wonderful is the God of Christ who finds the lost. Wonderful is the God of Christ who we welcome in our midst this morning. And as we welcome our Lord, we're going to sing our first song together.
Lord, we come together in our brokenness to call to you in your mercy to make us whole again. Wholeness giving God, listen to our prayer, we pray. Restoring God, we gather to worship you and seek to be renewed again. God, our quiet center, listen to our prayer this day. Life-giving God, we come to praise and thank you. And in the depths of your holy being, we find peace and life. And as we come to you, we pray together as our Lord Jesus taught us, each in our own language or in the language that comes most comfortable to us at this point, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. subject of tasting and seeing, one of the verses that we will be looking at later in the service comes from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus calls his hearers the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
And I don't know about you, what comes to your mind when you hear the word salt. I'm thinking of all the doctors saying we're eating too much of it and we should cut down and, you know, should be more careful. Or sometimes I think also about the salt that we use to relax or to make our roads less slippery during the, the winter. I guess maybe less so here, but in Lithuania, where I was born, that was a standard. That's one thing that always ruined your shoes, but very useful otherwise if you don't want to slip. Well, of course, in Jesus' times, salt was absolutely essential. They didn't have refrigerators. So if you want to keep meat or fish, unless you're eating it immediately, and you are not as foolish as to do that because you don't know when the next meat might come by or the next fish, you use salt to preserve it and to give it taste. That was a very important, well, spice, I suppose, not quite the word, but you know what I mean. So I thought we could do a little experiment. I didn't quite dare to prepare some meat without salt because I thought I'm not sure I'll get any volunteers. But I do have a couple of eggs. So it could be of interest to those of you who didn't manage to get your breakfast this morning. Um, and what we can do is try to see how it tastes without any salt. Okay? It's just been boiled and nothing has been added. But we will bring it to the plate. Um, would anybody want some egg? No? Otherwise, I'll have to eat it myself and try it. No? Nobody interested in trying some egg? It's nice. Nicely boiled. Try some egg? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite nice. It's quite nice, actually. Yeah. Yeah, we have... Okay, there, and then I'll come back. I promise I'll come back. Right. Okay. You go first. Yeah, you can take it with you. Yeah. I suppose it's not the worst thing to eat. How does it taste? Yeah, that's great. Definitely. You might be one of these very healthy people who actually feel it's okay, but how's it? I quite like it. Oh, you're ruining my point. Anybody who doesn't like it without salt? No? You don't mind? Well, you don't mind it without salt. You know what? I'll give you the next task. What I'm going to do is, this is salt. Okay. I'm going to put, if I can, one grain. Okay. Anybody likes, you like this with a little bit of salt? Okay. Well, see how it tastes with one grain. So it's that one here. Uh, the green's right in the middle. You might not be able to see it. I like the white and yellow. Okay, take some yellow as well. Felt the salt? A little bit. Everybody's. Yeah, you would need some more. You nearly ruined my point, too. Oof. Okay. Maybe I didn't quite manage to get just one grain of salt. Okay. Anybody want a proper, properly salted? Yeah? Yeah? Come here. Come here. Is that okay? Mommy's okay with some salt? Right. Shall we put some salt on? Yeah? Yeah? Like that? Want to try? That one. No? Yeah. See what you think. Mm 
Yummy, yummy. Does mom agree? Yummy. Good. Yummy. Good, good. Well, I'm particularly interested in this middle part of the experiment that we did with just one grain of salt. I mean, honestly, it's not much. As you said, it needs some more, right? One, one grain of salt is, is, is hardly making a difference. And that's the thing, that's one of the things that Jesus is saying there. Because when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he doesn't mean you individually, Anne. You individually, George. What he says is you plural. Basically, what's here in Scotland we sometimes call yous. <laughs> yous are the salt of the earth. That's what he's saying. And I think it makes perfect sense because it's about the togetherness of salt that he's talking about. That's what makes a difference, okay? In a similar way, the light, you know, small little light is not going to make that much difference if a room is completely dark, okay? We need something, some, some more light together. Then it becomes really light. And I think it's an important reminder for us as a church. God calls the church, us, use, to be the salt and the light together. It's about that togetherness uh, that he's exploring in the Sermon on the Mount. But it does start with one single grain, one little flicker of light. So it's a good beginning. And that's what we'll be thinking about uh, a little bit more today. But let's remember, it is about us together, called into the church and called for purposes of God. So salt. Not salt, unless you want to take a bath. <laughs> salt together. As a pinch. Sometimes maybe as a little more as well. To preserve, to purify, to give life. Unless somebody wants to finish the egg, I think I will remove it from here. And I believe we'll sing a song together as we let our young people to go into their activities.
As anticipated, our passage this morning is the very familiar words of Jesus that opens the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, and I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven.
we're still in the season of Easter, and our ears should still be ringing with the echoes of the story of the resurrection that we celebrated really just a few Sundays ago. But it could be that for you, Easter seems already far away. It does for me, at least, this year. There have been quite a few events taking place, and some of them really quite, quite significant. Maybe in our own families, or in school, or at work, or certainly in the world around us. And life has resumed its pace, or perhaps for some of us it feels like that pace has become even faster than ever before. So partly what I would like us to do this morning is to, again, keep remembering the message of the resurrection, its perspective on life and the newness that it promises and enables. Newness in the midst of life, perhaps even sometimes in the midst of death. It's really vital that we keep remembering and practicing to see life as it is now in the perspective of the resurrection and what it means. So I thought it would be good for us to hear some of the key words of Jesus in that resurrection light. I'm not sure that these words from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are read much in Easter season. Uh, For those of us who follow the discipline of lectionary, they usually appear somewhere in January, February, or in November when we're either focusing on the teaching and earthly ministry of Jesus or um, celebrating all saints. But I wonder if these words might ring slightly differently in this season of Easter, even as we struggle to keep that message, all-changing message, in front of us. It comes from my personal experience, actually, these last few weeks, as a, as a theology lecturer, I had to mark quite a few essays on the Sermon on the Mount. And I was struck how I was noticing new emphases as I was still contemplating the Easter message, but reading about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It reminded me how, in some ways, perhaps the Sermon on the Mount really only makes sense as a practice in the perspective of the resurrection. here's an interesting and perhaps disturbing thing. Even though the the words of Jesus and what we call Sermon on the Mount are clearly so central to how he saw the kingdom of God and what he preached, we, his followers, sometimes really struggle with it and have often been exercising all kinds of interesting interpretation acrobatics to explain it, perhaps even to explain it away. We have that tendency and we have to watch for it. But I don't see how we can avoid something that clearly is at the heart of Jesus' message if we want to live out the promise of his resurrection. In my own reading of the Sermon on the Mount, I have been particularly helped by one amazing person. I don't know if you perhaps have encountered any of his writings uh, He was a Baptist professor in Fuller Theological Seminary in California, and his name was Glenn Stassen. He passed away just a few 
uh, years ago. I had the privilege of knowing him and seeing actually how he was putting it to life. He was not just writing about it, although his writing was and is, I think, very helpful. But practicing it, being reconciliatory, being a peacemaker, being a meek one, being the one who mourned and hungered for righteousness. But this is what he wrote together with his former student who then became his colleague, David Gushy. And it's just a few sentences, but I think they help us to remember the significance of the Sermon on the Mount. They said, we believe that Jesus meant what he said, and so it is no overstatement to claim that the evasion of the teachings of Jesus constitutes a crisis of Christian identity and raises the question of who exactly is functioning as the Lord of the church. When Jesus' way of discipleship is thinned down, marginalized, or avoided, then churches and Christians lose their antibodies against infection by secular ideologies that manipulate Christians into serving the purposes of some other Lord. So today we have an opportunity to look again and be reminded of some of the crucial things about our identity as disciples of the risen Lord. His teaching in the Sermon on the Mount starts with, starts with the Beatitudes, a list of blessings to rather unexpected groups of people. And I don't know about you, but most often I see this list treated as conditions which Jesus kind of sets up for anyone who wants to be blessed. And so when we hear, blessed are the poor in spirit, we may think first, first of all, what on earth poor in spirit means, but then secondly, how can I become one? And perhaps I should really work on my meekness if I want to inherit the earth, and ooh, there is peacemaking, I should be doing more about that. But then there's mourners and those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, and I feel stumped, really, because I can't quite organize it myself. It either happens to me or doesn't. But it's actually these two, being persecuted and mourn, being, or mourning, they hint, I think, at a different perspective of, Je of what Jesus is doing here. What if rather than setting up a list of qualities people need to have in order to be blessed by God, Jesus is, in fact, looking at those listening to him, noticing them, naming their situation, and blessing them. Those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are poor in spirit, those who have at least some hunger and thirst for righteousness. And by declaring these blessings, Jesus tells them that God shows up in blessing perhaps where you might not expect God to be. With the poor in spirit rather than the rich. Those who are mourning rather than those loudly celebrating. The meek and the peacemakers rather than the strong and self-confident and victorious. Jesus proclaims to them God's blessing. And in the same way, 
if we have been hearing his words ringing again today in this portion of scripture, he proclaims to us God's blessing. His sermon to us too starts not with a requirement, but with a blessing. And in that blessing, we're invited to experience the now of the kingdom as well as its not yet. In the blessing, the kingdom comes near. And I do wonder whether this might be more difficult for us to accept than a set of requirements or conditions. It's a strange thing, a paradox really, but several wise people have noted that God seems to have much more blessing ready for us than we are able or willing to accept. Maybe it's to do with our image of God as a a demanding, perhaps even frightening figure. Maybe it's about the sense of guilt that we may carry at the very core of our being. But to digest the fact that Jesus' sermon starts with a blessing might be difficult. And to accept, to embrace the blessing that God offers to us sometimes may feel nigh impossible. So here it is for us too this morning. A blessing to you, all of you. God sees you. God knows your deepest desires. And those desires are blessed because the deepest human desires, your deepest desires, come from God who is the source of all life and goodness. You are blessed. Soak it up. Be comforted. Be encouraged. Be blessed. And open up to that blessing. And after this perhaps unexpected blessing, maybe received still with some suspicion and doubt, comes an even stranger affirmation. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not you really should be, or here's what you need to do in order to become the salt and light, but you are. You are. Just act like it. And this might be equally difficult to believe as a blessing. Are we really? I certainly don't always feel like one. And looking at the church, if we're honest, sometimes there's a struggle to affirm it is salt and light to the world. And yet, This is what Jesus says. And again, without any conditions or a set of requirements, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Only don't lose that which you are. Remember your identity. Don't become flavorless. Don't start hiding the light you are.
A few years ago, I met an interesting Lithuanian theologian who is exploring in his uh, research the growth of the gospel among fringe groups such as the goths and emos and punks and heavy metal fans. A, a very interesting person himself, but what was even more interesting to me was an observation that he made about the church and the world. He said, gospel without culture is like salt without the meal. Gospel without culture is like salt without the meal itself. I thought long and hard about this one. Saltiness and light only become apparent when they interact with the world, with the meal, with the darkness. They just don't make sense in isolation. They're kind of useless unless they're used. So how do we preserve our saltiness and our light? There seems to be only one test. It needs to be available to others to taste and to see it. It is only in our interaction with the world that our saltiness and light are of use, are real. Otherwise, Jesus says, what's the point of covering the light under a bushel? <coughs> only to extinguish it, really. What's the use of the salt? Well, only to trample it under people's feet. That's one thing we as a church should remember. The preservation of our saltiness and our being light will not come if we try to huddle and hide away from the world that sometimes looks quite threatening. Quite the opposite. And then, how might that salt and light look like? Well, Jesus clearly connects it to good works. Another interesting phrase, good works, seeing which the people will give glory to God. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount would give us a good clue as to the nature of those good works. It might be a good idea to read the rest of the sermon today or in the coming week, especially as we prepare for tonight and next Sunday's focus on Christian aid. Another way to help us think through good works and what kind of good works we might be called to do together and alone might be to notice the main emphases in Jesus' ministry and teaching and especially the quotes from one Old Testament book that he used most often. And that's the book of Isaiah. Again, I heard this first from Glenn Stassen who was quite interested in this reading of Jesus uh, from Isaiah. And I found it really helpful, and so I wanted to share it with you, hoping that it might be helpful to you as well, as you and we together as a church continue to work out the embodiment of salt and light here and now. So he noted the words and phrases that repeated especially often in the prophecies of Isaiah and in Jesus' words. And among those words and phrases were a few that I want to shortly stop at. 
One is deliverance or salvation, which is understood more than just being saved for the future, but something that is happening already, something that gives freedom, something that is holistic, is expressed in many ways, but can be described as deliverance. Salvation. The other one, and again it's a pair of words, righteousness and justice, and the two always go together. Righteousness and justice. In fact, in some languages, there's only one word to translate it in, in the Bible. One word for both. And being involved in works of justice means righteousness. And so it should be the other way around. Another word that keeps repeating time and again is peace, which again is not just a cessation of violence, a truce of some sort, but something transformative, something, something that leads into reconciliation and wellness, that sense of shalom, which is so much more than just the absence of, of violence. Another word that keeps repeating is healing. Whether it be of the body, or of the mind, or of the soul, or of communities, or of cities and towns and villages, nations really. Healing. And last one that I want to mention is return from exile. something about homecoming expressed in many ways but basically creating a sense of belonging deliverance or salvation righteousness and justice peace healing return from exile I think we'll do well if we keep looking at these signs of the kingdom when they appear and join in because that's where God is. As we look for these signs, we might discover that they appear in the most unusual or unexpected places. But let's join in. That's how we are salt and light. Yet, if the salt is flavorless, with what shall it be salted? It is good for nothing except to be scattered outdoors to be trampled by the people. In some ways, perhaps, the best sermon on what salt and light is could be preached by those who do not follow Jesus. What I mean by that is that they are especially a good barometer of our Christianity. They won't be so easily fooled by nice-sounding theology, long prayers, academic degrees, or beautiful music, or lovely worship style. Most of them look past things, past these things, into our lives, and they see more than we would like them to see. Perhaps more than we see ourselves. Even if they have a lot of objections to Christianity, they can point very sharply and precisely to the hypocrisy, lies, weaknesses, etc., of ourselves and our Christian communities. 
But also, even if they might totally disagree with the Christian message, when they see a person who embodies these qualities of Jesus and these signs of the kingdom that we mentioned, they do tend to acknowledge it. Often to respect it. Perhaps even giving God glory. This kind of x-ray procedure can be really scary, but I think it's also a gift that the people who do not follow Christ can give us. And if this makes us nervous, and it certainly does make me nervous, what if we've lost our saltiness? What if we keep covering our lights? Then I want to remind us where we started. Our being salt and light, our doing good works, isn't about doing a quota from the list. It is something we are told we are. And we are that because of the blessing of God, extended to us, not because of anything we've done, but because God is who God is. If God has stirred our hearts, if we've been drawn to the words of Jesus, that's enough for the beginning. Maybe it does feel like we're only a small grain of salt. And what good can it do? What difference can it make? We're only a flicker of light. What good is it in the world so full of darkness? But that's where it starts. It starts with a blessing offered to us. And continues with an affirmation of who we are, even if we struggle to believe it ourselves at times. Blessed are you, Jesus says. And because we are blessed, we then cannot help but let the light shine before others. We cannot help but share with them something of the taste of the kingdom so that there might be rejoicing and glory given to God in heaven. So be blessed. Remember that you, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Keep living who you are, being and doing those good works as disciples of the risen Lord. Amen.
Let us pray. God, bless those who are prune in spirit, who feel empty inside and who dread the day. God, bless those who mourn and grief, who ache with loss for someone so much loved. God, bless the people who are meek, who do not grasp or shout or demand to be first in the queue. God, bless the people who are hungry for justice and who cannot wait for everyone to have their rights. God, bless all who are merciful, who have learned to forgive even those who hurt them hard. God, bless all who are pure in heart, in whom there is no vengefulness, but only love. God, bless the peacemakers, the ones who, by their words and deeds, can change the world. God, bless the persecuted ones and keep them safe from those who would hurt them. God, so rich in blessings for your children, we rejoice in your promises and in your boundless and transforming grace. Amen.
generous God. Thank you for all that you have given us. And help us to remember that all we have, all we will ever have, is really yours. Amen. We come to our last song that we can sing together. If you're able and willing, you might stand. Otherwise, you may remain seated. But we sing together once again the echoes of the words of Jesus at which we looked today.
May the blessing of our God fill your hearts, your homes, your work, and your lives. Remember that you are the salt of the earth to those huddled in the shadows of fear and worry. Remember that you're the light of the world to those whose lives and hopes have lost all flavor. Go in the knowledge that you are blessed and be a blessing. Thank you.